Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. A quick announcement that we have a very special bonus of write-ins for this month. We've got storytellers working on manuscripts, TV scripts, treatments, plays, and so much more. And the best part is we're surrounded by each other's creative energy and are so motivated knowing that everyone is getting work done. I like to think of it as a virtual creative co-working space where you can write your stories from the comfort of your own homes in your PJs with all of your favorite snacks and beverages. Our participants have been killing it with their work in progress and they're always so pumped about our next write-ins because they know they're actually making progress with their work. And it's an absolute understatement when I say that I am so dang proud of each and every one of them for showing up and doing the work. I normally hold live stream write-ins once a month for an hour, but in March, we are having three different write-ins for two hours at a time. These live streams were created to help keep you accountable and productive with your writing, and they're exclusively accessible for our Patreon family in the green tea tier and higher as a thank you for supporting our show. Please pay special attention to the time zones. The first write-in is this Saturday, March 7th from 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our second write-in is happening immediately the next night on Sunday, March 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the third and final write-in of the month is on Monday, March 9th, from 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In case you did not know, this also comes with early access to our extended conversations with guests like Akemi Don Bowman and Linda Camacho from Galt and Zacher Literary Agency. Over the next several weeks, we're uploading the early extended interviews featuring Molly O'Neill from Root Literary, Marie Rutkowski, Stacey Lee, Samira Ahmed, Sarah Zar, Daniel Jose Older, and more. You also get access to all the extended conversations from our archive and the Patreon-exclusive video playback of my interviews with Mindy McInnes and Shannon Messenger, where we talked about publishing, marketing, money, and so much more. To join us, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up for the green tea tier or higher. Can't wait to see you there. If you've been loving our show, I have a feeling you're going to love our essays and articles over on our website at 88cupsofTea.com. Our published pieces are written by some of your favorite authors like Shannon Messenger, Sarah Faring, Annie Sullivan, Brittany Morris, Taylor K. Mejia, and many more. Be sure to check out our most recent article by Emily Christie Burak in partnership with our friends over at Vermont College of Fine Arts for our essay and podcast series of intimate stories from writers. Emily breaks down how to create more depth in your story using olfactory descriptions. She even created a writing prompt to help you strengthen your scent description muscle, and you can download that prompt at the end of her article. So head over to 88cupsofteat.com to read Emily's piece and the rest of our collection. Now about our podcast episodes, if you've been enjoying and having fun with our show, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. The more ratings and reviews that we get, I hear that it really helps with the algorithm to allow those new listeners to find us and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time. And thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who already took the time to leave a review. You're awesome. And on that note, I want to shout out CK Kramer, who wrote us a review that said... Yin curates a rich array of voices and backgrounds to provide life-affirming perspectives. I enjoy how she gets her interviewees comfortable, how she brings out the things that make them unique, and how they open up and share good insights. This podcast is good for writers or readers who would like insights into the publishing world and what it's like to be a published writer, and to hear how authors come up with their stories. Oh my gosh, CK Kramer, you are just the loveliest. CK Kramer has been with us since basically day one that we started our podcast. 
And I am so grateful to CK for her incredible loyalty and support to 88 Cups of Tea. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to write this heartfelt review. You are truly a gem. I'm so lucky to have you in our community. Alrighty, storytellers, for today's episode, we have New York Times bestselling author Libba Bray of the Gemma Doyle trilogy, the Michael L. Prince award-winning Going Bovine, the LA Times Book Prize finalist Beauty Queens, and the Diviner series. A very happy book birthday to Libba for her fourth and final book in the Diviner series, The King of Crows, that released this month. In our conversation, Libba and I talk about what it was like living and surviving in New York City when she first moved from Texas, and we dive into her first love of playwriting and the realities of producing a play. We then get into some real talk about money planning and creative fields and how to make an income while still making time for your craft. We discuss how she began writing young adult novels, the steps she took to learn the structure of a novel and discover her writing process, and how learning to receive and give feedback can help shape your writing style. Later in the episode, we go into detail about knowing when it's time to move on from a project. I know there's a lot of listeners in our Facebook group who've been wondering about this, so this one's for you. Pay special attention to Libba's experiences and advice, and hopefully it'll help guide you with your decision making. And Libba and I wrap up our conversation by discussing how to best work with your writing partner so it's a win-win relationship and how writing has helped Libba to make sense of her place in the world. Be sure to catch Libba's Instagram story takeover where you'll get a peek into the life of a very busy writer. Get to know the coffee-loving Libba on chilly morning walks, what it takes to get through her daily to-do list, and days in the music studio working on a musical. Head over to Instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea to watch her Insta stories. Now let's dive right in. You're based in New York, yes? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. Where where are you in New York? I'm in Brooklyn, which is where I think, you know, if you throw a rock, you'll hit a writer, but (laughs) you should not throw rocks at writers. Let me just state that. No throwing rocks at writers. Unless you're wrapped around money, you know, and then feel free. Oh my God. Okay. So in Brooklyn, yes. Like you were saying, there's tons of writers in Brooklyn. I'm located in the Lower East Side. Oh, I used to live on the Lower East Side. Oh my gosh. You know, growing up here, and it was actually, I wasn't allowed to stay out late to come out to this side of town when I was younger, but now it's like so different. Oh, yeah. It's kind of wild. Yeah. I mean, I I live in Alphabet City. Were you closer to the NYU, like St. Mark's? Like that's super popping right now. I was, I was on Second Street between A and B back in the very early 90s. When the Mr. Softy truck used to come through at all hours because it was actually not moving ice cream, people. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was like as a cop informed me one time, I remember calling because there was somebody who was was proselytizing and it was like 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. And I had to go to work the next day. And I remember just calling to be like, hey, do you know when this thing might wrap up or is this going to be an all night thing? And they said, oh, no, they have a permit. I was like, they have a permit to proselytize. And like, yep, yep. And then the guy said to me, let me ask you something. You live on the heaviest drug trafficking street in Manhattan. How come you never called to complain about that? And I said, well, because the drug dealers are quiet. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, like they're not out with a megaphone talking about Jesus at 10 o'clock. So uh, except for the Mr. Softy truck that comes through, you know, which can be annoying. I agree. Somebody above us had built an illegal deck, so it would rain in our kitchen, and that was fun as well. You know, a whole new world. A new fantastic (laughs) deck over here. (laughs) Thank you, my neighbor above. I'm sending you love, but not really. Oh, my God, you're a genius. You're so talented. You can really sing, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. That's stunning. Okay. I'm like, even though you're cracking a joke, I'm like, damn, I'm blown away by your voice. How are you not in that entertainment side of the world? (laughs) Oh my God. Wait, hold up. Did you feel very much safe and all that? Because I know when I was looking into apartments 10 years ago in the Lower East Side, like I remember feeling very unsafe because- there were men who would go up and try to touch me. 
Um, and I was like, whoa. And I noticed it's primarily in this location. So it was just like a little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, I was so Bambi-like when I moved to New York from Texas. And, you know, I had that sort of Texas friendliness about me. The story I remember was at my very first apartment in New York, in Manhattan, on um, 39th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. It was like just a wasteland. And it was, you know, like practically on top of the Queens Midtown Tunnel. So I I lived in this fifth floor walk up and I remember it was a holiday weekend. It was Good Friday and I was coming home late. I'd been at work and then I think I'd gone to see a movie or something. And, you know, that was a business district. So it cleared out after a certain time and I was coming home and my apartment, like many New York apartment buildings, you know, there's like the, the first little door and then you're in the vestibule where you would buzz for somebody put your key in and then you go through the second door right and then there's the stairs so i had gone through both doors and i started up the first flight of stairs and somebody's pushing through the doors behind me and i look down to see who it is and i see this guy pushing through and my first thought you know my first thought was not like i better run my first thought was well, my goodness, that must be one of my neighbors oh, I haven't met yet. You know, it's a shame I don't have a pie. So I just, I stood there because I was going to greet him. And then he pulled out a gun. And my second thought was not gun run. My second thought was, oh my goodness, that must be an undercover cop. And he's going to shoot the guy behind me. I better see who's behind me. That's so great was my denial. And I turned around and at that moment, it kind of clicked. Oh, wait. And then like this guy like threw me down the stairs and it was, are you? No, like he was beating me up. I was beating him up. He, then he started to pistol whip me and I was like, okay, you win. Are you fucking kidding me? Excuse my language. I am, I am not kidding you. No, I was, I, I got beaten and mugged and I'm screaming bloody murder. And I figured uh, on the first floor, there were no neighbors to come out to help at all or call the cops. It was a holiday weekend. It was like 930 at night. And there was a drug dealer on the first floor, Gabe. And you know he was a fixture. And I figured, oh, well, Gabe will come out, you know. But Gabe was away for the weekend. So, you know, finally I was like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And uh, I said, what do you want? He said, where's your money? I said, it's in my bag. Just take my bag, you know. And I was like like entry-level publishing. So I had $20 to my name and that $20 was precious, right? But the thing was, I had stayed late at work to work on a, a play that I was writing and it was all in longhand, you know, and it was like 50 pages. And this guy, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't want to give him my bag because it's got my play in it, but I also don't want to die. So die, play, die, play. Oh, no. So I was like, you know, just take it, take my bag. And he held the gun on me and started going through my bag. And I was like, okay, this is not good. And he looked down for a second and I jumped and uh, I used to run track. So I ran up those stairs as fast as I could. My neighbor had her door open and I'm like, shut that door, tackle her. If you did not have the instincts for fucking running away. (laughs) I guess it is all to say that uh, I loved the Lower East. Oh my God. (laughs) Like, man, I'm not going back to 39th Street between 2nd and 3rd. No, between 2nd and 3rd, going to avoid those avenues. Were you already working at Penguin or not yet? I was already working at Penguin. I was living with my childhood best friend who had moved to the city the year before and who was working at Ballantyne. And um, I think that we are, our worldly possessions consisted of two folding chairs, a card table, and futon bunk beds because our bedroom was so small that we couldn't have two twin beds in there and milk crates that held our, our clothes. And that was it. I mean, it was, if you turned around twice in a full skirt, you dusted the whole place. You know, I mean, it was that small and we were right under the roof. So to get some kind of relief, we would just crawl out the kitchen window and up the fire escape and just sit on the roof But, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing about New York. She was out after two years. But for me, New York has always been a love story. I I love this city. What drew you to go to New York from Texas? Stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I was living in Austin. I had graduated. I was waiting tables and nannying and trying to write plays. I think I had 
applied maybe to grad school and not gotten in. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life except trying to write plays. And she had called, I think it was May of 1990. And she called and she said, Hey, my roommate's moving out in August. If you're going to come and you want to come to New York, now's the time. And I thought, man, am I really going to do this? Am I going to just pack up everything and, and go to the big city? And I thought, yeah, I am. So I just worked a whole bunch of shifts. And I, and of course, you know, I had this idea that I was going to come to New York and be the next Edward Albee, right? I was going to be some big playwright. And I came to New York. I was so clueless. I mean, really, I always said if I had a production company, I would have to call it Clueless Moxie. <laughs> because it's just sort of like, well, I've never done this before. Okay, why not? I remember going to, back at the time, there were employment agencies and they would try to find jobs, right? Yeah. And I went to see this woman who had helped my my roommate find a job, Linda Cohen Johnson, God bless her. And she chain smoked. And I came in and I here I am with my little resume, you know, and, and she just looked at my resume and she looked at me and she goes, what am I going to do with you? She's like, you're cute as a button. You've got no marketable skills. Oh. <laughs> and so... She said, you're going to work for me. You're going to work for me and practice your typing because I had to take the typing test and I would get so nervous that one of the women, I remember I'd gone for a job as a receptionist or something at ICM and the woman who worked there (laughs) said, called Linda and said, she's really sweet and, you know, I really like her, but she gets so nervous before the typing test. Would it be unethical of me to slip her like half a Valium? (laughs) Because I would always screw it up. So I'm, I'm working for Linda for the princely sum of $200 a week. And I'm taking calls and watering her plants and getting her cigarettes, you know. And it was hilarious. And there was this other young woman who worked in the office named Joanne. And uh, Joanne was a hardcore punk. And I remember she took me to Johnny Thunder's memorial service down at the Continental on the, you know, on the Lower East Side. It was a trip. I mean, you know, it was just, it felt like, it felt like central casting in some ways, you know, and I would go out on all these calls, you know, I would just, I would go and essentially audition for a job. And then finally it was, it was my roommate who said, Hey, there's a job that's opened up at Penguin. They're looking for a publicity assistant. And so for a while I became the world's, for about six months, I was the world's worst junior publicist at Penguin. (laughs) I'm sorry, all those authors. Sorry. (laughs) Do you miss, you know, playwriting? Do you want to get back into it? Is that something that will always be something that you're going to continue working on? Because it's your first love, you know? It is my first love. And I love theater. I will always love theater because I think you can do something in theater that you can't do anywhere else, which is to uh, co-create a moment and all of you are in that moment together. And theater doesn't feel passive to me. And I I love theater. I'm It's interesting you're talking about all that stuff about moving to New York and wanting to get into playwriting because I think there's a lot about money. There's a lot about about socioeconomics involved in that. And that is, of course, that it takes a lot of money to get a play done. And it also takes money to have access to certain things. So, for instance, I thought, oh, you know, I'll try to get something done at Playwrights Horizons. Well, Playwrights Horizons was, at the time, that may still be, aligned with NYU. So if you were not an NYU student, you didn't have access. And, you know, it was sort of like, well, I could go to grad school at NYU, but I can't go to grad school at NYU because I've got to have a job. I didn't come from parents who could just say, yeah, sure, here's, you know, $40,000. That was not going to happen. So there were, there were a lot of frustrations in that regard coming up against, oh, wow, you know, I've always felt that if there is some way that I can extend help to somebody who is trying to make their way, that I want to be able to do that because I know how frustrating it is when you feel that certain doors are closed to you for any number of reasons. One of the plays that I wrote was was called Ladies in Waiting, and it was really kind of a play about feminism, and it was 11 actresses playing 40 roles. And I remember at the time, this was maybe early, mid-90s, I was doing a reading, and in order to um, cast actresses of color, I had to go through, do you remember there was an organization called um, Non-Traditional Casting? That sounds really familiar. I do remember being 
struck at the time by, oh, wow, look at these, like I'm seeing so many incredible actresses for such a small number of roles in this play. That ain't right. But I do remember like working on plays and trying to get them, you know, trying to do readings, trying to get people to come to those readings. It was very difficult. One of the things I remember about that particular play, because it was a feminist play and it was, you know, all women. And I had made up my own press packets. <laughs> and I had done like, you know, because I had been the world's worst junior publicist, but I had learned a few things. So one of which was how to write a pitch letter. So I had, I thought, well, I'll just, you know, again, clueless moxie. Well, I'll just try this. Why not? You know, I'd written up a press release and a pitch letter and I'd made postcards with my limited budget. I'd researched the production companies and sent them out to all these places. One of which was, I think it was the Women's Project. I remember, like, could not get anyone from the Women's Project to come see this reading of a play that was a feminist play by a woman about women mm-hmm. with all women. And a friend of mine who was in the play said, well, I'm just going to call him and ask him. And so she called and she said, you know, is, could you tell us uh, why you're not going to send somebody? And they said, well, unless we don't know you personally, we're not coming. Oh, wow. That was one of those moments of reality. Like, okay, this is a tough road. Do I really want to stick this out? So yeah, eventually I had a baby. Your son. Yes. The talented musician who loves writing. Well, started writing short stories. I remember. Yes. He is awesome. Yes. He is very talented. I'm quite fond of him, very proud of him. It's been wonderful to watch his creativity blossom over the past few years. Yes. And he's also lucky to have incredible support systems who understand what it's like to be in the arts world. You, especially being the writer, being the one that's directly creating and producing art all the time and for a living, he's so lucky to have you as his mentor. But also you're very lucky to have such a good boy in your life. He's such a good son. (laughs) I have to say, I'd say that I do not deserve to have a child (laughs) like him because I was a horror. Yeah, then what happened to your karma? (laughs) (laughs) I just smoke a cigarette in Karma's face like, look, bitch, don't even come around here. See, because that's the thing my mom believes. She's like, honey, you have no idea what kind of hell I went through with you. And I hope Karma gets you. You'll know what mama means and what mama had to go through. (laughs) Yeah, my mom was also like, she was great about many things. Like she's really, she's intellectual. She got me into books and music and all of that. But she was, she was very sort of 1950s in her outlook. I remember like looking at some dress that I was going to, I wanted to wear to a dance or something like that. And she goes, that's too sophisticated. So it was kind of like passive aggressive remarks. Yes. There's a certain amount of Southern woman code that I, I feel is um, things like, did you want to change before church? Okay. I got it. But there was also, I mean, my mom could be very direct about stuff like, no, you're not doing that. And where are you going? Who are you going with? I want the full details, which I mean, you know, is really responsible parenting. But I mean, my friends and I were feral. <laughs> when we were out of the house. And I had this friend, Jimmy, who was just the wildest child. Every wild, insane, like, oh my God, how do we get out of this story is with so Jeannie and I. And her mom, who I think was trying to say this as a dig against Jeannie, would say, well, Jean, y'all have the perfect relationship. Jean, you get you into things, and Libby, you get you out. And I thought, well, she's trying to kind of dig at her daughter there, but really how I hear that is, well, Jean, you're reckless, but Libba, you might be a criminal mastermind. <laughs> like, but it was true. Like, Jeannie was definitely the wild child, and I was definitely the one going, like, this is how we die. No, we shouldn't do this. This is how we die. I mean, just stories that now when I think about them, I am just like, man, there must have been an angel on my shoulder that we got out of those alive, you know? Yes. I would be the genie to your Libba back then. (laughs) I would get all of my friends in detention. I was on the cusp of getting expelled, but the deans luckily found me witty and just thought like, <laughs> like, okay, this kid obviously is troubled and she just needs to find a way to express herself. So they're trying to give me chances. But Jeannie wasn't the roommate that you ended up moving with in New York, right? No, no. She was a friend I made in sixth grade when she ironically moved to my little small Texas town 
from Queens, New York, but her family was from Dallas. I had been assigned to show her around because she was the new girl in school. And then I found out, you know, I was really into music. I was, I was into rock and roll at an early age. I had an older brother who was a musician and who was in, you know, into all that. He worked at a record store. And so I found out that she was also into rock and roll and liked Led Zeppelin. And so that was how we kind of bonded was because we both liked Led Zeppelin. I remember that we would sometimes is so geeky. We would lie on her (laughs) closet floor and listen to Led Zeppelin four. And we created this whole, it was called the kingdom. We created this whole fantasy world that was like part Lord of the Rings part, the song remains the same, you know, wow. <laughs> it was like, which really is an overlap anyway. I mean, Zeppelin already did that, but, <laughs> but we, we just would like riff on that. And then of course there were all the things we got up to that were just, like I said, it's really a miracle that we survived. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you guys end up losing touch just over the years? Just I don't know. I'm, I'm still in touch with her. Oh my God. You're joking. No, I'm still, I feel very fortunate. I have friendships that, you know, uh, stretch back over decades. Wow. That says a lot about you. That says that people just gravitate towards you and want to keep you and hold on to you in their lives. You know, my, my friendships are so important to me and I am just absolutely, I think the luckiest person to have the friendships that I do. And, you know, I have all of these, um, you know, writers that I'm friends with now, yeah. like Bill Foreman and Emily Jenkins and Kim Liggett and Nova Rensuma. Nova Rensuma is lovely. We had her on the podcast. She's just a kind soul through and through and just a beautiful, I could see why you both get along really well. You both have the same type of vibe. I love that. Well, I'm honored to hear that because I think Nova is not only a spectacular human, she is also just a phenomenal writer and teacher. And I miss her because she lived in New York. And now she moved. Yep. In her podcast episode, we were talking about, because it's something I try to talk about as much as possible, is the reality of money talk. The artistic life can be so demanding that it's easy. And I I know I get into this too. It's easy to say like, well, I'll think about that later. Right now, I just Mm -hmm. have to get this idea down. I have to, you know, and I have have to meet this deadline. Yeah. And increasingly, of course, we are being asked to be kind of our our own, you know, one-stop industries as humans. I don't know. I have a lot of um, conflicted feelings about all of that. It's a thing I struggle with all the time is the money planning, practical aspects of this business. When I was at Penguin, I'm, I think my first job there was $16,000 a year. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So then how the hell were you then able to survive in New York City? Barely. And still write your books? I had worked a variety of jobs. I had worked for Penguin and I left Penguin to go work for this insane entertainment company called Good Times Entertainment, not porn. One of the things that they did was they distributed Richard Simmons. They worked with Richard Simmons. And so for years, I, I basically was Richard Simmons. I would write all of his stuff. That's so awesome. All of his direct mail stuff that went out, all of his deal a meal, that kind of thing. Because Richard liked me, I ended up being able to do that freelance once I left that company. And I went and did uh, book advertising for a while. And then I worked with a startup advertising agency that I loved and was primarily entertainment-based, a lot of cable, a fledgling music channel out of Miami called The Box, and we did stuff for them, and we and we did stuff for off-Broadway shows, and it was fun. It was really fun. That's the, the one thing that I think is an important part of the writing process, is that everything is training. So, you know, one of the things that I learned working on creative for advertising campaigns, where P.S., you could have your coat on at seven o'clock at night, getting ready to walk out the door and you find out the client really hates something and you have to rethink your pitch that you're doing the next day. And you're going to be there till like 2 a.m. with some takeout and throwing ideas out. And um, I had this wonderful, wonderful boss who had worked at MTV and her name was Karen Grant. She was so great because, and she taught me a lot, And so I would come in with some kind of creative and I'd be really excited about it and pumped. And I'd be like, you know, this is going to work, you know, and she'd be like, that's great. 
tell me more about it. And then she'd say, cool. Now, how does that print campaign translate to a 30 second TV spot and a 15 second radio spot? And I'd go, uh, and she'd go, yeah, it doesn't quite have legs, does it? And I'd be like, no, it doesn't have legs. And I think about that when I'm writing something like thematically, I'll think, is this thing that I want to, that I'm starting to write about right now, does that thematically fit in with what this story is about? You know, does this have legs? And the other thought was there are always other words, you know, so I'd be like, okay, this creative, now I have to throw this away and start fresh. And so sometimes I think about that when I'm writing, I think about how that training was really helpful, but going off on tangents, is also a thing I like to do. Oh, trust. It is my specialty. I am president of that club. Trust. <laughs> like, we are way off the GPS. <laughs> but it is a new, exciting adventure. Yes. Look, the world's biggest ball of yarn. Let's dive in. <laughs> As seen. Um, so I was still trying to write plays while I was doing that. And then I wrote actually a play for the very first New York Fringe Festival. Oh. Um, and it was a fun ish. <laughs> an awful-ish experience. Oh, no. So I did this play and as part of the Fringe Festival. And <laughs> one night, the reviewer from the New York Times, who I will only identify by his initials, which are Peter Marks, formerly of the New York Times, now of the Washington Post, came to review it. And the review came out and it was just excor- it was only like three sentences, but there were three of the most damning sentences ever. It, he just hated it. Oh no! And you know what? He was not wrong. That's the thing. It's funny because I not long ago had a mentioned this on Twitter, and Peter Marks chimed in and was like, "I'm glad you found something that did work for you." And I was like, <gasps> "He kind of did me a solid in a way because there was something about truth." in writing that I think I needed to learn. What did you take from that that was actually helpful for you as feedback from his review? You know, I realized that it wasn't quite there yet. You know, like when you need to level up. And I think the word that he used, which by the way, I had to look up, was mawkish. And I was like, oh. What does that even mean? It's like really overly too emotional, too sentimental. Oh. What I realized after the fact was I was like, oh, rather than getting to an emotional place organically and allowing the audience to feel whatever they're going to feel, you can try to manipulate that in a way that I didn't want to manipulate. I wanted to express something that felt honest, for lack of a better word. For some reason, I'm thinking about when I was in Barcelona a few years ago and I went to, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his name, the Miro Museum. And I was, you know, kind of blown away by all of the art. But one of the things that really got to me was there was this self-portrait that he had painted early in his career. And they talked about how it was, I think it was like, you know, kind of derivative of another artist and the entire canvas is filled, you know, with like, oh, you know, it's like he wanted to express everything about himself. And it's a little overwhelming. And then years later, he painted over that self-portrait. I mean, like he must have been in his maybe 50s or 60s. And his style had emerged by that time. And it was a very, you know, the, the kind of um, symbolic style that we've come to associate with him. And it was a very simple painting atop the other one. And it was so arresting to me because um, what I read was that at that point in his life, he really just wanted to communicate on a very gut, basic human level. He was interested in connecting with other humans. And so it was like, forget all that other stuff. Here it is in its most simple form. And so I I think that that's kind of analogous. It was like, okay, I wanted, you know, it was it was a little presentational, that play. And what I needed to do was get past all of that and dig down into the guts and find some marrow that was so that I could be truthful about my experience and in so doing, be truthful about my place in the human condition and about the human condition and the ways in which we connect to other humans, all those things that we're struggling with, eventually what I took from it. And then I ended up writing books. 
And then I started reading all this incredible work. I was just blown away by what was out there. It was Jeannie So, actually, fabulous editor. She was a friend and I had shown her something I was working on and she was kind of like, okay, Libba, you know what? I think you need to learn the structure of a novel. And so she recommended me to 17th Street Productions, which is now Alloy, and Anne Brashares was an editor there, and they were looking for writers. And I auditioned, basically. I, I did something on spec for them, and then I ended up writing three books for them while I was trying to, you know, it's like I had a baby, I was doing freelance, because I, I had left my advertising job, because obviously staying till 2 a.m., when you have a baby, isn't fair, wasn't fair to me or anybody else or the baby. So I left and I was, I was like cobbling it together. I mean, those were some, whew, those were some rough times. Cobbling it together with freelance and, and doing some books for a packager, you know, learning how to structure a novel. Now, the interesting thing is all the things that I learned there, which were valuable, are completely antithetical to the way that I actually write. A very chaotic writer, but I do have an internal understanding of structure and how important structure is. I had a jazz musician boyfriend once upon a time who was explaining jazz and improvisation to me, and he said, "You can spin out wherever you want, you can riff all over the place, but you got to keep coming back to one." And so to me, it's like I always say, "Yeah, I can do all the crazy stuff, do whatever you want to do, but keep coming back to one." And to me, one is again like in the museum, it's all that human stuff. It is the emotional lives of these characters and trying to find that truth. There are so many listeners who have trouble differentiating when they should hang on to a certain project or just put it away. I mean, I feel like you are the perfect role model to ask. For them, if you have any suggestions or tips just from your own experiences of knowing when it's time to let go of something? That's a great question. And I feel like there could be a million answers. My own feeling is that, um, and this is again the forward movement, if something feels like, you know, it is just not working and not working and not working, put it away and work on something else. Until either you realize, no, that manuscript is never going to work, or, ah, I have figured out a different way in. I was, just, I was just using the wrong lens on that thing. And I've had that happen where I, I was working on something, and it's just like, case in point, actually. I'm one of the projects I'm working on. And by the way, I tend to work on multiple projects at once. So that way, if I feel stale or I get bored or whatever it is, I can, I can go on to something else and not feel completely stymied. One of the very first books that I ever wanted to write, I started like 20 years ago. And no matter what, every time I try to write it, I get excited about it for a little bit. And then all of a sudden I would have that feeling kind of like with the play where I was like, there's a superficial quality to this. There is something that is not rooted. It feels too clever and not honest enough. And I can't figure out how to get there right now. And I put it aside and put it aside. And then every now and then it would pop back up and I would put a little more paint on it. And then I'd go, nope, still not there. And only within the last year, when I looked at it again, did I suddenly go, now I know what it is I'm trying to say with this. And now I know how to make this honest and true. And you know, sometimes it's just about where you are in your life. That's so true. How about critique partners and beta readers? Do you have your own circle of those trusted readers and friends? Because I know you mentioned you made a lot of wonderful writer friends uh, you were mentioning earlier. Did that help you in your process during this timeline of looking at it, putting it away, looking at it, putting it away? And then eventually lead you, and yes, with time, of course, because of life experiences, changes, observations, basically overall growing as a human being. <laughs> but has it ever helped to, I'm not sure with that specific project, the one that, you know, from 20 years ago, if it was something you ever passed on to any writing friends to have a look to almost like inspire and maybe ask questions or make observations that you may not have noticed before that would help to jog your brain and then, you know, 
even if you're letting it rest and you pick it up again the next year, it'll click. Like, was there any form of that? Because that's something we always like talk about how important it is to have a community, trusted circle of readers is like, uh, does wonders for your work. So I'm not sure if this is much of more of a you only, I'm not ready to show anyone yet. Or is it like something that you've gone through with trusted writer friends? That's a great question. I think the idea of being able to share with people with whom you you know you trust and love is is a good one. That particular project I have I have not shared. I've kept it pretty under wraps. I've shared it recently with my agent Joe Volpe, but I haven't haven't really shown it and that's because it's not you know, to me, it's like, eh, it's still kind of, I need to, I need to keep it over here. And because there's some other things that are kind of front burner, but I do absolutely share things with writer friends. I know Gail and I share a lot of things and Kim and I share a lot of things back and forth. You know, we're often writing together in the same space. So we will sometimes be like, Hey, can I read this out loud to you? Does this make sense? I was just, finished up the last diviners book, King of Crows, there were parts that w- where I was kind of playing with form a bit, you know, where things were a little slightly more surreal. I mean, surreal is, surreal is, is kind of a, a, a setting for me. I, I mean, I think it's part of my DNA, but I wanted to make sure that I was not losing the thread. And so to be able to send something like that to Gail and have her come back with either like, yes, this resonates or girl, you got spinach in your teeth. You need to take care of that. I might not send a whole thing. It's usually parts of things. And usually it's something that is where I'm really stepping out on the ledge or unsure of something, something that's deeply personal. Those are the kinds of things I might tend to share with like a a really close group of writer friend, friend friends. I took some writing workshops and writing classes with different people and teachers. And there were some that I really looked up to some that really, you know, kept me on a high and like, sure. Even if the writing wasn't perfect yet made me believe in myself to push through, to keep on pushing for that story. There's others I've taken where I've really looked up to the leader of the workshop, but they say one thing, even though it's their way of communicating the honest truth, it might've been too much for me to receive. And I wasn't ready at the time that it then created like, it's on me though, you know, that I just didn't write for years after that because I kind of like didn't believe in myself or a certain voice. So I think I just find it always fascinating just to hear the kind of dynamic different authors have with their trusted circle of friends and how much they're willing to share. And I'm kind of like just learning from you, like how you share your work, how you take the feedback, how you know when not to share your work so that you can continue harvesting that creative well and and making sure it's protected so you could keep writing and not get stuck in years of not writing. You bring up so many good points about trust. And of course, a lot of that comes over time. You know, when you were talking about being in a writing workshop in which someone can say something that really inspires you and someone can say something and then you feel shut down. And I think that what happens over time is that you develop such an internal compass that you know you're not going to be shut down that you will not shut yourself down. You might hear something that is like, oh, dang, man, yeah, that's that's the thing. And it's also, there's such an art to workshopping. I don't even use the word critique if I'm talking to somebody about their work because I, I feel like that automatically sets up a sort of power imbalance and a criticism and critical kind of tone. Whereas if we can acknowledge, look, we're both writers, we're both artists, we're both trying to find the best possible way to make this story shine. And that's understood. And if we talk about workshopping, then what we're talking about is a rolling up our sleeves. Yes, getting in it together. Exactly. And so I always prefer that. And, you know, I do think it's important to let people know what is working in the piece. And then to talk about the things that might have stopped you as a reader. And I think if, you've, if you're phrasing it that way, if you're saying like, well, here's some places where I got confused. I wasn't quite sure about X, Y, or, you know, I felt like here, you're really touching on something interesting, but I think you can go deeper. I think those are the kinds of things that empower 
other writers to say, like, it's here, keep working, you have all the tools you need to bring that story out. And I will admit, there is also an aspect of me that sometimes if somebody says to me, well, I don't know that you can really do that. That's really all I need to be able to say, hide and watch, honey, hide and watch. Well, now that's all I'm going to try to do. I do think there is a certain amount of middle fingers that you have to have. And I think you also have to know enough to know that when somebody tells you, you know, sometimes people react to different things. One time I was reacting to something that was a comedic part of something I was working on. And they were like, well, this is just, this is not working. Get rid of it. And I thought, yeah, it is. It's working. It's just not your thing. But there have been other times when somebody would say like, I don't know, there's something with this. And I thought, oh God, they're absolutely right. That just has to go. That's just not working. But again, that is, that is time and tide. That is just, you, you work on things and work on things and work on things. I mean, I always say like, here's the good news and here's the bad news. The bad news is writing is a lot of hard work. The good news is writing is a lot of hard work. Yes, there are those lightning strikes that happen, but it's not some kind of magic that is completely out of your control. It is a lot of work and a lot of play and experimentation and exploring and fun and struggle and sometimes putting things aside and coming back to it but it is all within your control. It just may not be the right time. I usually ask this in this question for most interviews. And thank you so much for giving us extra time with you. So I'm going to squeeze this in, but I would love to know if there's been any challenges and moments in your life that have been really difficult to get through uh, to the point where you thought you couldn't get out of it. And I love to know how you got through it because it always inspires the community. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a great question. You know, there's so many things that can shut us down as writers and there are also surprising things that can give birth to us as writers. And certainly one of those for me was, and I'm sometimes asked, you know, like, well, how did you become a writer? And the story that I always tell is about when I was 18 and this was about three weeks after high school graduation. I was taking my dad to the airport one morning. I was trying to get experience driving standard. And so I was coming back and it began to rain and I came up on an intersection and the light was starting to turn yellow. And this guy, it was like a four lane, something like that, you know, intersection. And this guy turned left in front of me and I had to slam on my brakes and my car hydroplaned. And I hit a light pole, I guess it was. I, I think probably what happened was I hit the gas in my confusion because, you know, it's like gas clutch, all that kind of stuff. I was not wearing a seatbelt and um, I hit the steering wheel so hard with my face that I broke it off at the column. And basically if I'd hit one inch higher or one inch lower, I'd be dead. But what I did do was demolish my face and lost my eye. Well, I didn't lose my eye right away. I was I was in intensive care for like two weeks in Dallas. And the doctor came in at one point and said, look, here's the situation. Your left eye is damaged beyond all repair. You can keep it. It's going to look unsightly and you will probably get an infection and then you could go blind. Or we can remove it and fit you with a prosthesis. And, you know, so essentially... The first adult decision I was making in my life at 18 was whether or not to allow doctors to remove my eye. I did not want to go blind, so I said, yeah, take it out. And then I spent that whole summer healing and you know, kind of being put to back together. And they fit me with an eye, which was kind of ill-fitting at the time, just because there was still damage inside the eye socket that took years, by the way, to correct. And then I went to college. And when I got to college... It was the first time, I mean, first of all, like recognizing your mortality at 18 is a huge thing because you're not supposed to feel mortal. You're supposed to feel immortal. And I knew that I was mortal and I felt fragile. And I also was, you know, kind of put back together with spit and Kleenex, you know, and I suddenly, you know, it was just to know what it was to live um, disfigured. And, you know, people can be, people can be 
assholes sometimes. <laughs> you know, there was the guy that I had known. I used to work at an independent bookstore in high school after school, and there was a guy who used to come in all the time. He was a filmmaker, and I remember he saw me and didn't recognize me. And I told him who I was and what had happened. And he goes, Oh, I wondered, he said, because part of your face looks as beautiful as ever. And the other part looks like Frankenstein. What a fucking dick. Right. I know. But, um, I, I of course was devastated. And, but so I was, I was broken on the inside and I was broken on the outside. And the only thing that kind of really kept me going was that I had one of my high school graduation gifts was a journal. And I began to just write down everything I couldn't say out loud in this journal. Because, you know, one of the, I think, things that happen when something like that happens is that we really have this narrative about kind of like, but you're strong and you're positive and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And at the time, all you feel is like, fuck, but nobody wants to hear that. So I was angry. And of course, we don't allow girls to be angry. And I, I felt shame and I felt all of these things. And and I was largely self-destructive that year, quite suicidal. And I really keeping that journal was what kept me alive. And eventually, I came to feel that writing itself was something I looked forward to, that it was not just about putting all my pain down. It was about observations. It was about deeper thoughts about the universe. And I always say that I know that writing can save your life because it saved mine. But that was really writing kind of helped me get through an incredibly difficult period. And I felt that way about everything. I mean, like my dad was an AIDS death. And when he was dying, I was, um, I was out by his bedside, um, you know, in a few months and of course it was it was hard to to be losing him and to be losing him to a disease that so ravaged him you know i felt that writing during that time helped me kind of make sense of everything helped me kind of keep perspective so that i could be there for him and then afterwards i felt like i needed to write and i basically holed up for 6 weeks and wrote a play which was um, Ladies in Waiting, which I had been referencing earlier. And I think it was it was a combination of the grief I felt about my father and about uh, the fact that, you know, that AIDS had for so long, I mean, like the Reagan administration really just, you know, flipped middle fingers to AIDS, that I had lost people I loved to that disease. And also at the time it was um, Norma Corvey, who was Roe and Roe versus Wade, she was coming out and kind of saying that she wished she'd never been part of Roe versus Wade and that there was this whole, we were again fighting for women's reproductive freedom. And I felt angry that we were still having to fight these battles. And so, you know, kind of all of that came together, but I think the writing helped me kind of channel the grief into a certain kind of anger. And that was enormously helpful for me personally. I just feel that, in any difficult period of my life, writing is what helps me make sense of the world and make sense of my place in the world and make sense of my changing self, you know, I mean, to interrogate myself, to ask questions, um, difficult questions, because we do have to change and grow and evolve. And these difficult things that happen to us force change. And writing is a place to also reflect upon that. And so I feel so grateful always. And I will say that um, as a woman aging in this society, that I have been writing a great deal about what that feels like, you know, because you become invisible at a certain point. And I think that that is something that also it helps me, speaking of mortality again, it helps me explore that and it helps me make sense of that. And so I just, I'm forever grateful to be able to have a pen and a notebook and to be a sentient creature on this planet as uh, Oliver Sacks, I think once I'm, if I'm paraphrasing him, that it is sort of a blessing to be able to be that and do that and to have this kind of artistic life that really asks tough questions and forces one to to keep growing. This is my perspective and others could disagree, but very much our observations, our experiences, things that have happened to us, whether we wanted them to or not, 
it really does almost test our growth to see what versions of our evolved beings could become. And that's always something I'm always reflecting on when I reflect back on difficult situations and think, wow, had it not been for that, there's no way I could have had the strength to do this just recently. And it's almost like pushing ourselves to be as expansive as possible, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, all of that. And I just love how it ties in with writing for you, specifically with your story. And I cannot believe what you went through. And you are just a freaking hero. Let me tell you, you are super human. <laughs> so very, very human. I can promise you. And I still don't know where my keys are. <laughs> Thank you for that kindness. But, you know, I, I mean, one of the, the gifts that difficult situations can bring about and that writing and reflecting can bring about is a sense of compassion and empathy. And also, I think an avoidance of, or, or trying to push ourselves past comfort and complacency. And especially in these times, I think that's a, a really important thing to think about because I think uh, we can often be obsessed with ideas of security and safety and some false idea of guaranteed happiness. And I think that that is just not realistic. And, I, and it takes me back to that day in the museum in Barcelona and looking at the Moreau. And there it is, like the constantly painting over these portraits of ourselves, trying to get clearer and clearer and clearer in that very kind of, ah, God, I don't even have the words, in that way that says, here I am as naked as I can be, and I am so present with you, and I want to be present with you, fellow human. There's also something I want to add to that, where you mentioned where, you know, pushing yourself out of comfort zones and also so many people thinking that there is a happy ending all the time. And, you know, personally, I've been having friends whose parents have passed away and really dealing with the challenges of accepting the reality of that and also accepting when it's time to go through grief of loss. And I notice that that's something that I've been, I don't want to use the word obsessed. I guess you could say a little bit fixated because of fear. And I always listen to this podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking by Nora McInerney. And it's incredible. Great title. <laughs> it's so good. And one of my best friends, her mom passed away and she's the one who said, hey, you should listen to this podcast episode. It's not just, you know, about death, but it's about being human she knows I love talking about the human condition, just being people in general. So she's like, you know, there's something here that you could, you know, maybe you'll, you'll, you know, it just gives me peace. And then for me, I listened to it because I was like, well, I'm really fucking awkward at talking to people and trying to make them feel better if someone passed away. Right. So I'm like, maybe it's just telling me a hint. So let me listen to it and learn maybe how to communicate with her and express how I feel or let her know how I want her to feel comfortable with me. If she ever wants to talk about her grief, how can I be there for her to give her the same kind of comfort the podcast gave her? So that's why I actually was like, you know, hooked on it first. But then I fell in love with it. And it just became like this rabbit hole of like obsessing through all these episodes. And I would cry every single episode. And I started thinking like, why, why is it I'm always obsessed with this podcast episode? I cringe because I think, oh God, this is something that's the inevitable. This is something that everybody goes through. And it's so fucking scary to know that that is something that no matter what, at least for me, how I see it, where I'm very much so positive in my mentality. And I think, okay, you can always focus on the bright side. But what would break me the most, like most fellow humans, is a loss of a loved one. And that is something I don't know how I would be able to cope with or if I would ever get that childlike curiosity and wonder back after that inevitably happens with one of our loved ones. And so I fixate on the podcast, but listening to stories of other people going through grief and trying to find the moments of hope that I can grab onto to prepare myself. Does that make sense? Where it's like, you talking about what you were talking about earlier 
facing mortality at an age where it's supposed to be all about immortality. I'm at an age where it's like quite common where we are surrounded by the conversation about mortality. My whole cloud nine headspace where now it's talking about, oh God, what's going to happen with the parents that we should talk about wills and all that stuff and just make sure that they're okay and like what to do. And, you know, I want to make sure my sisters are okay. And like having conversations with my parents, sitting them down and saying, listen, both mine and my girlfriend's best friend, our best friends, their parents passed away just these last two years, three years. And they never talked about what to do afterwards. There's never that conversation. So it's torn families apart because there's not that one decision that was talked about clearly beforehand by the parent of what they want to do with whatever it is, like their body. If something happens, do they pull the plug? Do they continue? Do they, you know what I mean? Right. And things like that, where I've had to sit my parents down and be like, listen, I need to know if something like this happens. I know we're Buddhist and it's like, you know, it's not allowed to like pull plugs. That's like what I heard growing up. And now my parents are like, nope, we're surrounded by too many people who are passing away and we don't want to go through any of that. So pull the damn plug <laughs> if it doesn't look like we have any chance of survival. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to. And I'm like, okay, well, having this conversation has almost helped a little bit more. Yes, I agree. It's, it's, it's being able to like look the thing in the face and say, look, I mean, that's actually one of the things I love about my mom is she is just absolutely dead blunt, <laughs> but it's a relief because, you know, I mean, I remember saying something to her, this was like with my mom is 80, almost 81. And I said something to her, like she was having problems with some health thing. And I said, well, mom, you know, like, you know, and she looked at me and she goes, well, it's not like it's going to get any better. It's the downhill slope. And she just said it in a wow. very matter of fact way. And I thought she's absolutely right. Yes. Don't take that away from her. Don't try to like, you know, put a bow on it. It's like, she's absolutely fucking right. Yes. Lay that out and then see where to go from there. It provides relief in that way. And also in a way, creates space for hope and happiness to build up from that realistic point of knowing that it won't get any better, but what can we do then to make this shitty situation better? Absolutely. Because when you're in denial, when you're operating from a place of denial, you're actually closing off intimacy. You know, you're denying yourself whatever joy and growth is going to come from from that time. I mean, like I, I remember sitting with my dad and he was not in denial about the fact that he was going to die. You know, AIDS was a death sentence at that point. And he weighed 97 pounds, you know, I mean, like he couldn't even eat. But, you know, and AIDS is a very roller coaster kind of ride. Like you will have, they'll be like, you know, don't make any plans this weekend. He's going to, he's going to die this weekend. And then he'll rebound, you know, and this went on for like almost three months, but we had great conversations. And we, we made the most of that time with the acknowledgement, like, this is what it is. We both know how this ends. I could be wrong, but I feel like it's a peculiarly American experience because we are so consumed with the idea of happiness. I mean, it's, you know, there it is, the pursuit of happiness as a sort of birthright that um, we don't like to think about mortality. We're so in denial about death. And even, you know, I think about grief, you know, when you were talking about grief, and I think grief and loss are kind of like a true democracy, because I think that we can experience love in different ways, we can experience hope in different ways. But grief, loss, I feel like that we all as humans experience that in, in the same kind of howl. I mean, it's, it's the same, it's pain, you know, and that is a true democracy. And that's also one of the reasons why we turn to art so often is to be able to find comfort in these inevitabilities. I mean, not for nothing, but I have a big tattoo on my arm what? and it's, it's actually from Blade Runner. What? You're so badass, Libba. I love Blade Runner. And that Roy Batty's death speech, when he's talking about all of the things, you know, like about, you know, I've seen things you wouldn't believe, you know, and he's talking about all the things that are going to be lost. And he says, those moments will be lost like tears in rain. And then he says, time to die. <laughs> 
and he, I mean, he accepts it in the moment, but it is, it is, yes, that beautiful, beautiful speech about all of the things that will be lost. And it's just, I mean, it's like, because this is what it is to be human. Even if you're an AI, you, you, you understand, you know, what it is to be human and what it is to lose that because inevitably that is, you know, that's the end of the story. But I, I also think that it's kind of, it sounds macabre to some people, but I think that it's, a, it's actually a reminder, like, that's right, man. So get out there and do some living because eventually it's all gone. My God, this conversation got me so teary-eyed. On a rainy Sunday morning. I know, my God. This conversation, thank you so much, though, Libba. Seriously, can you please let everybody know where to find you on social media? Oh, yes. If you choose to find me on social media, <laughs> suckers. <laughs> Joke's on you. <laughs> I can be found on Instagram, Libba Bray. And I'm on Twitter, but not so much. I, honestly, I've been cutting back on social media a whole lot because I'm just creating a whole lot more and having a life. And, um, and so I'm not on social media as much, but I'm also Libba Bray on Twitter you can find me there or probably at the corner bodega getting something to eat. And that wraps up my conversation with Libba Bray. Libba, you are just so awesome. Thank you for that wonderful, heartwarming conversation and for sharing so much wisdom with our community through your experiences. I learned so much from our conversation and am thrilled our community got to listen in on this storytellers thank you for hanging out and tuning in as always please be sure to stop by and say hi to libba on twitter at libba bray and don't miss her instagram story takeover where you'll get a peek into the life of a busy writer get to know the coffee loving libba on chilly morning walks her days in the music studio creating a musical and see what it takes to get through her daily to-do list head over to instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea to watch her insta stories don't forget to support a fellow storyteller and grab a copy of The King of Crows, the fourth and final book in her Diviner series. To find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Libba's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Libba Bray. If you're looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your huge wins for the week, along with recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole ton of gifs in there. So if you have a smile on your face right now, just from listening to that, you need to come hang out with us at Facebook facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.